So, um, welcome to the third of our talks on key doctrines of the, of the gospel. You know, I actually feel a bit nervous about this series of talks. We've just finished a tour of John's gospel and we've looked at lots of things that Jesus said and did. We've thought about the story of his life on earth. And we've also been treated to um, the various side stories of his disciples and other people that he came into, into contact with. We've, we've had a whole year of stories. And um, Steve mentioned a moment ago that we have imaginations, you know, with a little imagination. We can really get into a story, can't we? We can be in the crowd listening to Jesus teach. We can be in the boat when he walked on the water. We can be in the upper room when he washed his disciples' feet or even at the foot of the cross. I love the Gospels because I think they take us closer to Jesus than anywhere else in the Bible. But now we've decided to study doctrine. And I'm nervous because uh, unlike the gospel stories, saying that we're gonna talk about doctrine uh, often makes people expect something a bit dry and boring. And I'm just hoping I don't live up to those expectations uh, today. Um, but I'm also slightly daunted by the task because actually what we really mean by doctrine is something far greater than any individual Bible story. The doctrines of the Bible are actually the great themes of God's ways and God's purposes. Doctrines, uh, insofar as they've been defined by theologians and Bible teachers, are the result of our efforts, human efforts, to understand what the Bible is all about. Understanding doctrine is, is more like opening a panoramic window into spiritual things, not just for um, academic interest, but to help us understand more of what God has done for us and why. Um, that said, it is true that sometimes getting into the nuts and bolts of a doctrine um, so we can see that bigger picture does require a bit of effort and, and it can feel a bit like hard work if we get too bogged down um, with the detail and the meanings of Hebrew and Greek words. Uh, I'm going to try not to get us bogged down today. Um, but we do have to look at the meanings of words, don't we? Because that's how we discover what God means, obviously. Um, and actually, we also need to think about the meaning of English words. Because that's the language that we read our Bibles in, isn't it? And, and sad to say, we don't always know the meaning of words in our own language, um, which is why we have dictionaries. So let's see how we get on anyway um, with our subject today, which is the doctrine of atonement, atonement, which as I've said, is one of the great themes of the Bible. In fact, we could say, um, we could argue that it's actually the greatest theme in the Bible because it enables or touches on so many other things. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, the Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, according to the scriptures, is of first importance. He didn't use the word atonement, but hopefully by the end of my talk, 
you'll see the connection. Now then, obviously, atonement is an English word and it can be used, although not that often, uh, it can be used in non-religious language. If you look it up in a dictionary, you'll see that it means paying the penalty or in other ways, making amends for a wrong or an injury. So um, if I upset you, um, I might be able to atone for what I've done by doing something nice for you. Uh, if you damage someone's property, you might be able to atone for your carelessness by paying for the repairs. You get the idea? It means paying the penalty or in other ways, making amends for a wrong or an injury. Now, there's another word I want to give you because in our modern English Bibles, the word for atonement is often translated as propitiation, which is not a word that we use um, very often at all. And it has a very slightly different definition. Um, it means um, very succinctly, the appeasement of an offended person. And um, if you're like me and you're not 100% sure of what appeasement means uh, and you look that up, you'll see that appeasement in the dictionary means to satisfy or make someone calm, like someone who's angry with you. Make them calm by offering something. So in your Bible, some of the verses we're going to look at tonight um, might use the word atonement, like in the NIV version that I use. And some might use the word propitiation. One seems to focus a little more on paying the penalty. The other seems to focus a little more, as far as the English definitions are concerned, on satisfying the offended person. The definitions are very close, uh, but it does show how difficult it is for translators to find just the right words in English to convey the meaning of the original words written in the Bible. But our subject today, if we take those definitions as a starting point, has something to do with a penalty being paid to make amends for a wrong and in so doing to satisfy someone who is offended and angry because of that wrong. And it's not hard to see how that might relate to the gospel, is it? And actually our ability to see that um, is what helps us to understand doctrines, despite any uncertainties that there might be about the meanings of individual words. Remember, when we study doctrine, we're looking at Bible themes, things which are bigger than just any one word or verse, or even multiples of verses. Um, the doctrine of the Trinity, is a good example. I'm not, don't worry, I'm not going off on a tangent, but just to make the point, the Trinity is something we understand about God from multiple scriptures. And we understand it fairly well, we might think, uh, as well as we, we possibly could do. Um, even though there's no single word for Trinity anywhere in the Bible. So you, you get the point I'm, I'm making. Sometimes it just helps to take a step back and look at the bigger picture. And when it comes to the atonement, we can see that bigger picture in the whole sacrificial system of the Old Testament. A system which God instructed as a temporary arrangement, so to speak, um, 
until Christ would come and, and, and do it for real. Um, and we'll talk about what it is as we, as, we, as we go forward. But the thing is, although it was only a temporary arrangement, God gave very precise instructions about how everything was to be done. And it's in the detail of all those Old Testament rituals and feasts, things which often seem very complicated and they can be quite difficult to read in our Bibles uh, because of the legalistic language that was used, we can see little appetizers, little clues which point forward to Christ and what he's done for us. And that's what increases our depth of understanding and appreciation of the Lord Jesus which is one of the most important reasons to study doctrine in the first place. Now then, that's quite a long preamble, I think, tonight. Um, but anyway, let's get into the nuts and bolts of it. With regard to the atonement, the best example, um, I think everyone would agree, um, is in Leviticus chapter 16. Um, the annual ritual known as the Day of Atonement. But before we read about it, and just with the definitions that I've given you already, let me let me just set the scene uh, a little bit more with a few verses about why atonement is necessary. In fact, Steve did this last Sunday, really, when he spoke about the doctrine of sin. And he quoted from Romans chapter three, um, if you remember. And it says uh, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And it also says in that chapter that there is no one who is righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. And it says the whole world is accountable to God, which, of course, is a reference to God's God's judgment. And the Bible makes it very clear how God feels about sin. One word that we find throughout the Bible um, is the word wrath. Romans 2 talks about the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. In John chapter 3, it says that God's wrath will remain on all who reject Christ. Now, I'm not going to repeat any more of what Steve said last week. You can listen to the recording on SoundCloud, I guess. But the bottom line is that God, for good reason, hates sin. It provokes his wrath. And yet, he loves the sinner. He hates the sin, but loves the sinner. And as it says in 2 Peter 3, he doesn't want anyone to perish. That's what sets the scene for the great doctrine of the atonement. God's wrath against sin, but his love and desire to rescue us from the consequences of our sin. So we're going to go to Leviticus um, chapter 16. Before we go there, I just want to read one verse from the following chapter. Um, chapter 17, it's uh, verse 11. Because, uh, as I said, uh, we can see the atonement um, throughout the whole of the Old Testament. And there are loads of verses which refer to atonement being made as a result of of an offering, a sacrifice being given. This verse in chapter 17 tells us something very important about what's needed for atonement. So it's chapter 17 and just one verse 
11. For the life of a creature is in the blood, and I have given it to you to make atonement for yourselves on the altar. It is the blood that makes atonement for one's life. Okay, so short, just a short verse. And the context of that verse is explaining why the Israelites were not to eat blood, uh, because blood is symbolic of the life of an animal. Um, well, a bit more than symbolic, really. It's vital for life, isn't it? But I've read the verse because it highlights this important thing about the Old Testament sacrificial system. It wasn't enough for the Israelites to just offer something which was of value to them. That wouldn't be enough to appease the wrath of God. It had to involve the death of an animal. And that's because, as it says in Romans 6, the penalty of sin is death. And therefore, the sacrifice was given for atonement had to involve a death. Animals dying instead of human beings. If you're an animal lover, then I know that's horrible, but it just conveys a little of how horrible sin is. Now, of course, it's not saying that the life of an animal is worth the life of a person. Hebrews 10 makes that clear. There was nothing in the Old Testament system which actually took away sin. It was just a shadow of what was coming. And God accepted the blood of animals as a temporary atonement because it pointed to the day when Jesus would shed his own blood as the ultimate sacrifice, the only one who could make full atonement for the sin of the world so just keep all that in mind if you if you can um as we read a little bit of leviticus 16 now i'm not going to read all of it and don't worry about all the detail um just try to get an idea of what was going on and of course uh, listen out for the word atonement so one verse at the beginning verse two the lord said to moses tell your brother aaron that he is not to come whenever he chooses into the most holy place behind the curtain in front of the atonement cover on the ark, or else he will die. For, and this is the key bit I want in this verse, I will appear in the cloud over the atonement cover. Now down to verse six. Aaron is to offer the bull for his own sin offering to make atonement for himself in his household. Then he is to take the two goats and present them before the Lord at the entrance to the tent of meeting. That's the tabernacle. He is to cast lots for the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other for the scapegoat. Aaron shall bring the goat whose lot falls to the Lord and sacrifice it for a sin offering. But the goat chosen by lot as a scapegoat shall be presented alive before the Lord to be used for making atonement by sending it into the wilderness as a scapegoat. Aaron shall bring the bull for his own sin offering to make atonement for himself and his household, and he is to slaughter the bull for his own sin offering. Let's go down to verse 15. He shall then slaughter the goat for the sin offering for the people and take its blood behind the curtain and do with it as he did with the bull's blood. He shall sprinkle it on the atonement cover and in front of it. In this way, he will make atonement for the most holy place because of the uncleanness and rebellion of the Israelites, whatever their sins have been. 
He is to do the same for the tent of meeting, which is among them in the midst of their uncleanness. No one is to be in the tent of meeting from the time Aaron goes in to make atonement in the most holy place until he comes out, having made atonement for himself, his household and the whole community of Israel. Then he shall come out to the altar that is before the Lord and make atonement for it. He shall take some of the bull's blood and some of the goat's blood and put it on all the horns of the altar. He shall sprinkle some of the blood on it with his finger seven times to cleanse it and consecrate it from the uncleanness of the Israelites. When Aaron has finished making atonement for the most holy place, the tent of meeting and the altar, he shall bring forward the live goats he is to lay both hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the wickedness and rebellion of the Israelites, all their sins, and put them on the goat's head. He shall send, he shall send the goat away into the wilderness in the care of someone appointed for the task. The goat will carry on itself all their sins to a remote place and the man shall release it in the wilderness." And then one verse at the end, verse 34, this is to be a lasting ordinance for you. Atonement is to be made once a year for all the sins of the Israelites. And it was done as the Lord commanded Moses. So, like I said earlier, it can be sometimes quite hard to read these instructions about rituals and sacrifices because they're quite they're quite legalistic and they're quite wordy and there's there's lots of detail in there um but if we just cut to the the chase of the main things that were going on there was a, it was an annual ritual that's what we read in the last verse every year when the high priest would offer sacrifices and he made atonement it says first for himself in his own household that was the bull and then we've got these two goats. Let's talk about the first goat that was sacrificed. It said that its blood was sprinkled in front of and on the Ark of the Covenant. Specifically, the part of the Ark that the blood was sprinkled on was the lid, which was known as the, um, the atonement cover. Now, traditionally, that lid's been called the mercy seat, uh, as you'll find in many translations. But the NIV uses the phrase atonement cover because the Hebrew word comes from the same word used for atonement. And they've added the word cover. Not just because it was the lid on the box, but probably, I think, because the meaning of the Hebrew word also includes the idea of a covering which is a bit strange and it doesn't really fit with the English definitions for atonement that I gave you before, but we see it in Genesis chapter six. And we find there the very same Hebrew word used to describe what God told Noah to do with his ark, different ark, obviously, we're talking about the big boat when we talk about Noah. Um, God told him to cover it with pitch and it's the exact same word the Hebrew word that's used elsewhere for atonement. So how does the idea of a covering fit with the definitions of atonement that we've been thinking about? Well, as we read in verse two, the Ark of the Covenant 
was where God appeared and spoke to Moses in a cloud over the ark, over the atonement cover. And underneath the cover, inside the box, inside the ark, we find the what? The law that God wrote on the stone tablets, the law that the people couldn't keep because of their sin. So I think we've got this thought of God looking down from where he is above the ark. He's looking down on the law, the law which condemned the people. But what does he see? He sees the blood that was sprinkled on the cover. And in that blood, being reminded of what Christ would do one day as the ultimate sacrifice. And therefore, even though the animal's blood was only symbolic of, um, of what Christ would do, it was enough to satisfy God temporarily and to appease his wrath. So although the idea of a covering is not really in the English dictionary definitions, it does seem that the biblical definition of atonement does include this idea of the wrong being covered in some way, hidden from sight. Now, what about the other goat? We read that the sins of the people were confessed over it and it was taken away to a remote place and it was left in the wilderness. Again, uh, this was only symbolic, but it seems that God was saying that because of the shed blood on the atonement cover, the sins of the people were not only hidden from sight, they'd also been taken far, far away. So far away that God would forget all about them. So although atonement in the Old Testament had this sort of sins being covered by a sacrifice, we shouldn't think that it just meant that the sins were hidden, like God had somehow swept them under the carpet, because we also have this sort of the sins being taken away completely. So that was the Old Testament. Let's go to the New Testament now and think about how these points might relate to the Christian gospel. Like I said, Leviticus 16 and, and, and the whole of the Old Testament is only pointing forward to the Christian gospel. The Old Testament is the shadow. The New Testament is the reality of what God has done for us in Christ. Let's read one verse from the book of Romans. Romans chapter 3 and verse 25. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. Um, the last bit there is referring to the temporary arrangement, um, but it's the first bit that we, I want us to, to focus on. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood. The Greek word that Paul uses here 
which is translated in the NIV as sacrifice of atonement, might be different in your words, in your, in your um, version. Uh, it's the same word that we find in Hebrews 9 and 5, which is talking about the lid on the Ark of the Covenant. So you can see the link between, between the two. We also see it um, similar word, not exactly the same word in the original language, but in First John chapters two and chapter four, uh, we see Jesus described as the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Uh, Hebrews two and seventeen, we find Jesus described as the high priest who has made atonement for the sins of the people. Strangely, you might think. Um, Apart from these verses, there are not very many other verses in the New Testament which include any version of the word for atonement. Does that mean it's not such a big deal after all? Of course not. Um, but I think the reason why the word doesn't appear many times is because the doctrine, as I said at the beginning, is much bigger than the few words that we focused on to define it. The um, Holy Spirit has used so many other words to illuminate the doctrine in different ways. Let me just give you four examples. Um, we've talked about the need for atonement is because someone has been offended. And we know who it is who's been offended by sin, don't we? And God is more than just offended. Um, I quoted Romans 2 and 3 earlier, two of the many verses which tell us about God's wrath against sin. So that's the first thing. We said, secondly, that atonement usually involves someone having to pay a penalty to make amends for what they've done. And when it comes to sin, because it's so serious, there is only one penalty that God can accept. Romans 6, the wages of sin is death. Now, there's no mention of atonement in Romans 6 and verse 23, but we can see how that penalty fits into our definition. Thirdly, that brings us to a principle which is absolutely key to the gospel. And we see it throughout the Old Testament the principle of substitution, that one life could be taken to avoid the penalty for another, that God could take sufficient satisfaction from the sacrifice of a goat or a bull or a lamb, that his wrath would be calmed, that he would be appeased. And we thought about how animal sacrifices were only ever intended to be a temporary arrangement, but now in the New Testament we can see the Lord Jesus as the permanent arrangement. Hebrews 10 says that the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ is once for all. He died as our substitute. And in that one amazing sacrifice is sufficiency for all the sin of the world, for your sin, for my sin, for all sin, for all time. He suffered the penalty. He paid the price on our behalf. You know, the, I mean, there are multiple verses. I think for the sake of time, I'll skip the verses I was going to quote. I'll, I'll just, let me just give you um, one of them, uh, one of many verses. Um, 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. Look at all the verses in the New Testament where you've got for us. You know, it's, it's the principle of substitution is, is everywhere. And in those verses, we're reminded of something which is quite amazing about the atonement that God, the one who was offended, is the one who has paid the penalty. He's paid the penalty to appease himself, to satisfy his intrinsic righteousness. And the price that he paid 
so high, the death of his only son. So three things we've um, looked at, the need for atonement, the penalty of atonement, and the principle of substitution. Fourthly, let's not forget about the goat, the second goat, the one that was taken out into the wilderness, carrying the sins of the people away to be remembered no more. In Hebrews 8, it talks about those living under the new covenant, that's us today, and it says that God will remember their sins no more. Why? Because like the goat carrying the people's sin into the wilderness, our sins are not just covered, they're not just hidden, they've been taken away. And we remember what John the Baptist said about Jesus in John chapter 1, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So I've gone a little bit over my time, I apologise for that. Um, this is the great doctrine of the atonement that we're thinking about today, uh, foreshadowed throughout the Old Testament. Um, and essentially, it's, it's God looking down on the sin of the world. And that includes your sin and my sin. And he's filled with wrath. But then he looks at the perfect sacrifice of the Lord Jesus, the one who suffered the punishment, the penalty on our behalf. And God's righteousness is satisfied. God is satisfied and his wrath is turned away. And therefore, all the other blessings of the gospel are possible. The things that we'll be looking at as we go through this series of, of talks. So that's it, um, at least a part of it. Uh, with many of these big themes of the Bible, we often feel like we're only scratching the surface. But hopefully, if you didn't know what the atonement was before, or you needed any reminder or clarification, um, hopefully what I've said tonight has been um, at least a little bit helpful. Thank you.